BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. Once again, I am your host, Kim. Today's case was suggested to me by a listener, and since she left a five-star rating and review on Apple, I am happy to do my best to cover this case for her. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to dig up a lot of details on the background of the case. However, the case does bring up some issues that I think are worth talking about for sure, as well as a unique and really great way that victims' friends have channeled their grief into community action. This is the murder of Barb Danilesco. In the heart of Alberta lies its capital city of Edmonton. Edmonton was built on the banks of the North Saskatchewan River, And for those of you who are wondering why a river named Saskatchewan is in Alberta, the word Saskatchewan is Cree for swift-flowing river. Edmonton is Canada's northernmost city with a population over a million, and in the summer of 1987, the areas within the city of Millwoods, Bannerman, Fraser, and Evergreen were hit by an F4 tornado that killed 27 people. It was an event that I remember very vividly because I was 16 at the time and quite concerned that it was going to change my plans to attend a David Bowie concert scheduled in August of that year, commemorating his Glass Spider tour, and, and being 16, of course, what was going on with me was much more important than the people of Edmonton. In this area of Millwoods, on a quiet suburban street, a young newlywed couple thought that it was a great place to start their life. The area was, at the time of 1982, a fairly new development, so they had their house built based on their specifications, deciding on a split-level layout, and set to work creating a life and a family together. Barb and Justin, who some reports refer to as Jay Danilesco, By 1994, the couple had two boys, Scott, who was nine, and Todd, who was six, and Barb had settled into her role as a mom and wife, and she took both roles very seriously. She volunteered at her son's school, Mary Hanley's Catholic Elementary. 
Her and Justin coached minor league hockey. She organized block parties. I mean, she was the goat of mums everywhere. Always having gum in her purse, she got her kids to school on time each day with a lunch packed with love, kept her yard neatly groomed and her house clean and organized. And in fact, a neighborhood girl who was 15 at the time, Glennie's Haskin, babysat for the boys and said of Barb, quote, she was wonderful, probably the nicest person anyone has ever met, the nicest person to talk to. Barbara Laurie Malmus had been born in Lacombe, Alberta in December of 1957, and by April of 1994, she was, thir- she was a 36-year-old mom and wife living the suburban dream, going to church on Sundays. She had no enemies, no high-risk lifestyle, and no secret life, no abusive husband, no past disgruntled boyfriends or co-workers, and she wasn't pregnant, a fact that actually increases your likelihood of being murdered by about 50%, making it the leading cause of death in pregnant women. What could possibly go wrong for this young mom and her lovely family? On the night of Friday, April 15th, 1994, it was a very normal day for the Danalescos. In fact, I tried to research anything interesting that happened in the world that day and came up with nothing really. Robert Kennedy Jr. got married, the World Trade Organization was founded, and R. Kelly's Bump and Grind was playing on radio stations four months before he would marry 15-year-old Alaya, kicking off his two-decade-long run of sexual assaults and trafficking of underage girls. But I doubt Barb's day involved much bump and grinding, R. Kelly, or any interest in what the Kennedy family was doing. Instead, she focused on making dinner and getting Scott and Todd ready for bed. Once the two boys were nestled in their beds and stories had been read and the usual bedtime stalling tactics of young children everywhere was done, she and Justin went to bed themselves. Around four in the morning, Barb was awoken by a beeping noise. Being that she lived in a good neighborhood and wasn't running drugs on the side or anything, she thought that one of her boys had knocked the phone off its cradle uh, when they got up to get a drink of water. And this was back in the day of landlines, um, when a phone, if it wasn't put down properly, would beep. Just explaining for you young folks out there. So she got up and she put on her house coat and left her bedroom to check on them. Only when she got into the hallway and turned the light on, she was surprised to see three teenagers she didn't know rummaging in a dresser in the spare room. Now, for reasons that none of us will ever comprehend, including the three boys, instead of hightailing it out of there, not wanting to get into into anything with a mama bear, and whether it was all three or just one of them, decided to get into it with her over a few CDs that weren't probably even music that they listened to, and a small bit of cash. Being rushed at by a stranger or strangers, Barb screamed as one of the boys plunged a knife into her chest, piercing her heart. Justin was awoken by his wife's screams and her running back into the bedroom. He didn't notice the stab wound on his wife and leapt out of bed and tried to ward off the intruders that were now heading to the front door. Two of the boys decided it was time to get out of there and ran out of the house, leaving behind one that was being held by Justin near the front door. Justin and him looked at each other and Justin said, I don't want any trouble. Just leave. Just get out. And he did, fleeing out the front door. Justin returned to the bedroom and realized that something was very wrong with Barb, who was now slumped over on the bed with a lot of blood. He rolled her over and saw the stab wound right around her left breast and quickly tried to do CPR and told Scott, who, remember, was only nine, to go to the bathroom and to get some towels he could use to compress the wound and call 911. 
Little Todd heard the commotion and clung to his dad's arm as he did CPR on his wife of 12 years, and Scott screamed into the phone for someone to help his mom, which is a call I'm quite happy not to have a copy of because I just don't think I could stand to hear it. Barb was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately she died a short time after her arrival, leaving not just her family, but her entire community shaken and incredulous that, that such evil had visited their safe bubble of a community. A number of officers were called to the scene, and officers inside the house were able to determine that they had entered the house by a basement window on a slider. Constable Doug Green and his tracker buddy Rico the dog made their way along the street where the Danalescos lived. Along the way, they found a discarded pool cue and then a bit further down some kind of iron bar. Following the path of discarded items, they headed across the school field and towards a ravine running behind the Millwood's house, and he spotted at the top of the hill two sets of footprints clear as day embedded in the mud of the trail. Rico stuck his head into some mud and pulled out, using his teeth, a white running shoe. So Doug immediately called over the radio to let the other officers in the area know that at least one of their suspects was missing a shoe. And that's when Inspector David Bell who was covering the area of Capilano, which is immediately north of Millwoods, spotted two teens running. They had their pants on inside out, likely as a way of trying to not reveal the blood that was on them. The bottoms of their pants were wet and muddy, and each of them only had on one black shoe. It's likely when one of the guys lost his shoe, the other gave him his. But I don't know what kind of getaway strategy one shoe each is. Clearly, I don't think it was an Ocean's Eleven scale plan, but they were definitely trying to cover their tracks and not get caught. But caught they were, so Doug and Rico headed over to where the cruiser they had been placed in was parked and held the white shoe up to one of the kids' bare and muddy feet and wouldn't you know, a perfect fit. Rico and Doug left the officer to finish up his charges and cart off the two guys, and they headed back to the ravine to look for the other shoe and possibly the third suspect. Rico stuck his nose deep into one of the footprints and this time came out with a knife in his jaws. Thinking that what he found was just a stick, Doug grabbed it from Rico, cutting himself in the process. It was, in fact, a large 15-centimeter bladed knife. A second knife was recovered from a neighbor's yard the next day. Both of the knives were later classified as boning knives. The two teenagers who were caught were 15 and 16, respectively, and couldn't be named but they were both charged with second-degree murder. Officers continued to search on the Saturday for the third suspect going door-to-door to see if anyone had seen or heard anything. Homicide detective Tom Peebles said, quote, There is no indication why this house was picked. This is not a normal occurrence. Neighbors and friends gathered on lawns to hug and console each other, who were just shaken by the tragedy and the randomness of the crime. On April 20th, five days later, with no signs of the third suspect, Police Chief Doug McNally considered requesting the youth court reveal the names of the two arrested teens, hoping that it would suss out the third boy. But however he was found, a third boy, who was only 14, was arrested later that same day. The 14-year-old was later convicted of manslaughter and tried as a youth, and was given a three-year sentence. He said he didn't have anything to do with the killing of Barb, but that he had been armed with a broken pool cue. He says that Sonny Head, who was 16 at the time, and David Larrakew, who was 15, were the two guilty ones. 
according to the 14-year-old's account of the events, is that he ran into both David and Sonny at an arcade. The boy knew both of them from school, but David and Sonny did not know each other, until the 14-year-old introduced them. Sonny suggested that they do a break-in and get some cash, and all three of them agreed and followed Sonny to the Grant McEwen Community College, where behind a garbage bin he had stashed a few weapons in a plastic grocery bag. The 14-year-old grabbed the pool cue, and Sonny and David each grabbed a knife. Then all three of them headed to the Millwoods area because, according to them, it's labeled as a rich area. They walked past several houses looking for one without motion-sensing lights or any cars parked outside, and that's when they settled on the Danalescos. It wasn't until three years later that David and Sonny went to trial. David pled guilty to manslaughter charges and was sentenced as an adult, hence why he was eventually named. He received a four-year sentence with no parole for two years. His sentence was a bit strange as I'm not sure how the time served part worked for him. He was in a youth offenders facility from the time of his arrest until his trial in 1997, so that's three years, but then he was allowed to stay there for another five months to finish his high school diploma, and then he transferred to prison after that. And according to the Edmonton Journal, his total time in custody would work out to about 10 years. So I believe, and don't quote me on this, that the time served in a youth facility does not count as time served like it does if you were, say, an adult held in a remand center. Sonny was charged and convicted of second-degree murder, and he was given a life sentence. He was granted full parole in 2003, but five years later it was revoked due to his alcohol use. He applied for parole again in 2011 and was denied, and in 2015 he was on the road to full parole again with some temporary day passes that went on without incident and completion of addictions and anger management treatment. The board stated of him in August 2015, quote, You have previously verbalized that you take full responsibility for your actions in the death of your victim, and you have demonstrated remorse and empathy for the victim's family. You have acknowledged that the guilt you feel will never be enough to make amends for your actions, end quote. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. After Barb's murder, Justice Minister Ken Rostad wanted the Youth Justice Act completely overhauled. He criticized both the Ontario and B.C. governments over their suggestions that youth crimes be treated as social problems, claiming the majority of youth crimes are committed by kids with psychiatric problems or victims of abuse, and that more resources needed to be directed at getting to the root of the problem. Rostad felt that there needed to be a wholesale crackdown. Some changes were made, putting the onus on the defense to prove why serious or repeat youth offenders shouldn't be transferred to adult court, but much has remained the same. Many of Barb's neighbors ran out and got security systems and put bars on their windows. One of Barb's close friends and neighbors, Barb Hingnong, said that even a year later, her boys were reluctant to sleep in their own beds, saying it never leaves their minds. It's always in the back of her husband's mind, and it's always in the back of my mind. You think about it every day and every night when you go to bed. At the school where Scott and Todd attended, one of their classmates asked Community Constable Brad McMillan, can you come over to our class and give us a demonstration on what to do so this doesn't happen to my mummy? 
A Mother's Day rally was held in Edmonton by FACT, which is Families Against Crime Today Society, which you might remember from the Ryan Garrish story. His parents joined FACT after his death at the hands of a school classmate in 1992. Crowds walked the streets of downtown with signs reading, Bring Back the Lash and Enough Already. And Calgary's often controversial mayor, Ralph Klein, commented that the execution of some youth offenders was called for. Settle down, Ralph. That's a little bit extreme. Currently, any youth, even if sentenced as an adult, cannot serve any of their sentence in an adult prison until they're 18 years old. Any sentence, including first-degree murder, cannot exceed 10 years, and no more than six of them can be after the age of 18, and second-degree murder is a max of seven years, uh, with a maximum of four of them served in adult prison. No one under the age of 14 can be tried any under any circumstances in adult court, and the ban on publishing a youth's name is now discretionary for judges if they are at least 14 years old, and it must be found necessary to protect the public against the risk of the offending committing further crimes. The definition of violent offense has been expanded and now includes offenses that would endanger the life or safety of another person by creating a substantial likelihood of causing bodily harm. But one local teacher decided to do something a bit different to commemorate Barb's memory. Colleen Ring, who taught second grade at Mary Hanley's Elementary School and who knew Barb and the kind of woman and mother she was, started a program in the school called Kids for Kindness, where students were rewarded for the acts of kindness and were assigned projects to promote the idea of kindness. Colleen's sister Debbie, also a teacher, told Aaron Hinks of the Peach Arch News, we could see that when you put the emphasis on kindness and positivity, there's a change in the students. Then the parents would say there's a change in the kids when they came home. That really kept us going. In 1996, Debbie and Colleen went to the mayor to ask for a week to be called Random Acts of Kindness Week. Debbie said, quote, The game plan was simply to bring awareness and optimism and action to the public. Random Acts of Kindness Week is now held in February each year. Shortly after, the sisters received a letter from Tokyo and the World Kindness Movement asking them to speak at a conference there. Quote, you look at the phrase random act of kindness, it's kind of like permission in a way. I think that's how the people of Edmonton took it. It was always very surreal to us. We were two classroom teachers from Alberta attending gatherings and sitting at tables with some high-profile individuals collaborating on the creation of, of global kindness networks. In 2020, Colleen told Jen Jansen, who was a writer for the Alberta Teachers Association, it is time for all of us to recognize the role that we can play in creating a world in which basic human rights for all is the norm and the beauty of human diversity is embraced and celebrated. The ultimate lesson which I hope my students will take away is that we have a voice and that we can make a difference. For her work, Colleen received a Hillroy Fellowship Award and Global Television Woman of the Year in 1999. And that was the horrible murder of Barb Danalesco. Current statistics estimate that in Canada alone, 12.25% or just under 5 million people have had their homes invaded in some form or another between 1995 and 2000. 68% of these invasions were by strangers and 21% by casual acquaintances. Um, in half of the cases involved weapons, and the most prevalent being knives. 47% of home invasion incidents, the victim reported physical injuries, 38% reported minor physical injuries, and 8% reported major in 
injuries that required professional medical attention at the scene of the incident. Elderly victims get the worst of it. 17% of victims injured are over the age of 60. In September of 1990, in Cumberland's Beach, Ontario, Leah Sosa was home with her mom and nine-month-old brother and sleeping on the couch when an unknown intruder broke in the back door, beat Leah's mom, Laura, into unconsciousness, and then carried Leah to the backyard where she was violently sexually assaulted and then viciously murdered. In 2018, 71-year-old Rodney Butler was attacked by strangers who came to the door of his Carnes Avenue home in Saskatoon. He was treated in hospital for a facial fracture. In October 2020, a 17-year-old boy who was visiting his grandmother was stabbed to death while on the line with 911, reporting Ronald Chubb and Jordy James as invading their home, entering from the basement and filling a laundry basket with items to steal. That happened in Winnipeg. In November 2021, in Vancouver, an 89-year-old was taken to the hospital with life-threatening injuries after a man walked into her front door and assaulted her. Again in Vancouver in February of 2021, Usa Singh, 78 years old, was found critically injured inside her house when two men posed as police officers to get into her home, then attacked her. She was taken to the hospital, but she died the next day. Now, I'm not a gun owner, and even if I was, I'd spend way too much time fumbling with it in any kind of emergency and probably shoot myself. So what can somebody like me do to protect myself from this kind of very random crime that scares the bejesus out of me and probably you too? Well, according to consumersadvocate.org, most home invaders are looking for money or items and not you. So what you can do is take a walk around your property and look for potential weak spots like windows that are easy to get into and make sure that expensive electronics and things are not visible from the outside. Just don't entice anybody with your stuff. Keep your yard neat and don't let bushes get overgrown where they can obstruct the viewpoints of your house. Intruders really like privacy, so don't give it to them. Also, plant thorny type of bushes close to windows on the main level. It seems silly, but burglars do not like prickle bushes. Put up a fence, um, but not too solid of a fence. You don't want hiding places or footholds, so consider the structure when you build a fence. Cover your garage and basement windows. Better yet, install bars on them. And get to know your neighbors, especially the busybody ones. They can know what's up and watch your property pretty closely. You can make sure that your front door and back door are always secured with dead bolts and a wooden rod in your sliding glass doors actually does work. If you have a door inside your garage that leads to the house, lock it and make sure it stays locked. I think that's a big one. I think a lot of people, they come bring their car into the garage and then they leave that door unlocked. When you first move into a new place, change all the locks because you have no idea who has access to the previous keys. And instead of hiding a spare key anywhere, including those disguised rocks and gadgets, give a spare key to a trusted friend. Uh, If you get locked out, you can still get in and thieves know all the good hiding places anyways. Most importantly, they recommend think like a criminal. Be very mindful of a guy in a clipboard knocking on the door. I actually never open the door unless I'm expecting someone. If it's the cops or an emergency, I figure I'll hear them yelling and see the lights. If someone does break in, give them what they want. Don't get into it with them. Even your mom's heirloom engagement ring isn't worth your life. Lastly, I'm very thankful I'm a heavy sleeper. Once I'm asleep, I hear nothing. I could die in a fire or be murdered, but at least I'd be asleep through it. I don't handle anxiety and fear very well, but the unconsciousness of sleep, I'm totally down for that. 
I will be back again next week. Do your rate, review, subscribe thing. Don't forget about exclusive content that you can subscribe to. There's links in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.